From the food we eat, the air we breathe, the land we dwell, to the health of our body and mind and the well-being of all things in the universe. Unlock the science with Chula Radio Plus. Welcome to Unlock the Science. I'm Virada Salim. Ever since the successful economic reform program beginning in late 1970s, under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, China's economy has surged rapidly. Between 1989 and 2019, China, or officially People's Republic of China, recorded an average growth rate of 9.5% annually, which was described by the World Bank as the fastest sustained expansion by a major economy in history and has lifted more than 800 million people out of poverty. Even though the economic growth rate of China has recently slowed down due to its economic tightening measures, some major natural disasters and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the country's growth rate remained relatively high. That makes China more and more economically powerful and potentially dominate the world economy in the near future. Currently, China is the second largest economy in the world with a gross domestic product of 15.47 trillion US dollars, only behind the United States. Despite being the second since 2010, the GDP gap between China and the United States has narrowed down each year. According to the World Bank, China's GDP growth rate has been higher than that of the United States for more than 40 years, especially in 2020 when all countries were being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. It was noticeable that the GDP of the United States dropped while that of China still rose. In 2021, as the world was still being devastated by the pandemic, China's foreign trade broke a new record of exceeding $6 trillion US dollars for the first time, up $1.4 trillion from the previous year, according to China's General Administration of Customs. Taking advantage as among the first countries to recover from the pandemic, China pushed the export of medical goods and household products globally, which boosted its export value significantly. With its economic expansion, China has been exerting its might all over the world, in all continents, and especially in developing countries. Africa is a key continent that has seen enormous China's presence. The economic relations between China and African countries have drastically surged over the past two decades with trade value skyrocketing over 17 times from approximately 11 billion US dollars in 2000 to 192 billion dollars in 2019. And during that period, China has become Africa's biggest bilateral trading partner, biggest bilateral lender, and one of the biggest foreign investors in the continent. Trading with China allows Africa's foreign trade to become more diverse, with lessened dependence on United States or Europe. Recently, China has donated nearly 200 million COVID-19 vaccine doses to Africa and is expected to give out more. In addition, Chinese President Xi Jinping has publicly said in inviting Chinese companies to invest no less than 10 billion U.S. dollars in Africa in the next three years.
However, there have been controversies over China's financial assistance to African countries. Since China provides financial support to Africa, mostly in the form of long-term loans rather than grants, it has been argued that China's action was a debt trap for its own benefit, according to some American observers. Nevertheless, a public opinion survey on China's influence in 34 African countries in different fieldwork periods of time between 2019 and 2021, conducted by Afrobarometer, which is a nonpartisan pan-African research network, showed that almost two-thirds of African people said China's economic and political influence in their countries was somewhat positive or very positive, while only about one in seven considered it negative. In Southeast Asia, China has also been playing a key role in the region's economic development. Trade and economic relations between ASEAN member countries and China have constantly risen. Trade volume jumped after China was accorded a full dialogue partner statue with the regional grouping in 1996. Trade between ASEAN and China more than doubled in the 10 years from 2010 to 2019, with the value jumping from 235 billion US dollars to slightly over 500 billion dollars in 2019, which constitutes almost one fifth of ASEAN's total trade. China remains a key trade partner of Southeast Asian countries until today. Trade is not the only China's economic might in Southeast Asia. The Chinese government is also expanding its global and regional presence through a transcontinental infrastructure building project known as the Belt and Road Initiative. Unveiled in 2013 by Chinese President Xi Jinping, projects under the Belt and Road Initiative are mainly related to infrastructure development in transports, energy, mining, information technology, and communications. This initiative involves a large number of countries in Asia, Europe, and Northern Africa. Under the initiative in Southeast Asia, China plans to build extensive railway system connecting with Laos and Thailand, and eventually to Singapore through Malaysia. This will allow China to expand its export markets, reduce trade frictions, and even gain political favors. At the same time, this benefits ASEAN member countries in overcoming the problem of inadequate infrastructure, which will help lifting obstacles in short-term and long-term economic growth. Up next, a local science reporter, Garantarat Lerit, talks to Associate Professor Dr. Piti Si Sangnam of Faculty of Economics, Jualungon University, to gain his analysis and thoughts on the expansion of China's economic power in the world stage and in Southeast Asia. What do you think are key factors that make China's economy grow at a faster pace than other countries? Um, I think there are two key factors that make China grow very, very fast. The first one is China learned from the history, not only its own history, but also other country history. So they don't repeat the thing that other countries uh, gone wrong, as well as they learn from their own failure history. So they don't repeat the the old uh, the old negative thing they did in the past. So that's the first the first factors. The second factor is I think when China try to do something new, 
they don't just do it like a you know uh uh 100% reform from black to white immediately no but china they i think china is the one the countries that uh did so many projects in the you know sandbox style they trial and they fix it in a very very small group of people in a you know a small piece of land in some kind of like uh more like a pilot project right so then they learn from that small pilot project at the same time they run this kind of like four five six pilot project at the same time some success some failure so they learn from that success and they learn from that failure and then finally they come up with their own formula to implement to the whole countries for example when they start the economic reform in 1976 to 1978 that's the three years the second generations of uh, chinese leaders like teng xiaoping learned that what mao zedong the first generation leaders did were wrong for example the greatly forward it's wrong so they don't repeat it again they learned that the great cultural revolutions this is wrong so they don't do it again so this is the part that i think they learned from the past how does the continuing rising of china's economic power affect the world economy um i think we see china as the new rising power and of course the old power uh feel uncomfortable with the situations so we expect to see the clash between the old power and the new power like china's hence a uh, world is going to face with the situation so called to see the distrust when the old superpower clash with the new superpower in some kind of way you know in the past uh there's the uh, books by graham arisons professor from harvard universities he study this kind of situations when there's a new rising super nations countries and the old super nation countries for the past 500 years this kind of situations happened 16 times 12 out of 16 times we see the all out war between the old power and the new power and when we talk about war now today the war sometimes is not hard war like world war 1 world war 2 or cold war anymore but we see the war in terms of trade war technology war soft power war this is the situations that we are going to face and that's why lots of people talk about we are entering into the so called the situation so called new world order so that's we can expect from the rise of china could you explain to us china's debt trap diplomacy especially regarding china's activities in africa and the belt and road initiative um i think for the debt trap this is more like a unfair accuse to china because you know you see a lot of project that is not not well returns in terms of you know business returns but if you think uh, of this kind of belt and road infrastructure connectivities as the public goods that one country is provided to another countries in terms of like financial assistance um the returns from this project is not only financial returns but we have to think about economic returns social returns and as sometimes you also have to think about that a uh, political returns as well and if we calculate this kind of thing i don't see any belt and road initiatives failure because you know for africa especially for african countries 
they wait for so long, but they never get response. They never get supported by by Western countries or by any other international organizations. This is the first time that Chinese governments and some uh, international organizations, such as AIIB, Silk Road Fund, New Development Fund, provide them some new opportunities in order to develop its backbone infrastructure. This backbone infrastructure, of course, in the very, very first phase, when the whole system is not complete yet, you see only emptiness. No one will use it. But once the whole project is complete, then you see a lot of traffic, you see a lot of business flow into these kind of activities. But from this time, the time of emptiness, when the whole com- the whole project is not complete, we see a lot of social returns, such as this is the open of the you know new frontier. This is the opportunities for local uh, people to get you know jobs. Uh, it is the time. Ta- is the you know opportunity for local suppliers to sell some of their products. Hence, in terms of this kind of returns, it's may returns in kind, not in cash. But at least these countries get something. What should people expect about the direction of China's economic power in the near future? Is China capable of overstepping the United States as the world's largest economy in terms of GDP? Of course, it, it's going to happen either fast or uh, I think uh, you know um, we see at least three scenarios. If Chinese economies can grow with the same rate uh, at, at the situations under the situations of COVID-19, I mean China growth with the rate of like seven percent, eight percent a year, where U.S. growth at the rate of like three percent as before COVID-19, China will overtake, will take over U.S. and become the largest economy in the world by the year 2028. But if China go at the rate under COVID-19 pandemic periods and U.S. go at the rate under COVID-19 pandemic as well. I mean, China go with the GDP growth rate of 8% and U.S. go with the rate of 5%. China will overtake, will take over U.S. and become the largest economy by the year 2030. And if they go at the rate prior before COVID-19, China grow with the rate like 5% to 7%, 5 to 6%, and U.S. grow with the rate like 2% to 8% to 3%. China will, will overtake, will take over U.S. and become the first, the largest economy by the, by the year 2035. Hence, it just, you know, when it's going to happen. But, but China will become, because, you know, um, U.S., actually lost their competitiveness. Producing things in U.S. is very, very expensive. And, and at the same time, China is the world factory. Uh, this is a thing that inevitable. It's going to happen. That is Unlock the Science reporter Garan Tarat talking to Associate Professor Dr. Bitti C. Sangnam of Faculty of Economics, Jilalongkorn University. We will take a short break now. You are listening to Unlock the Science on Chula Radio Plus. For Thailand, the country has been having mostly a close, friendly, and harmonious relationship with China since establishing diplomatic ties with it in 1975. 
Thailand and China are well connected ethnically, culturally, and economically. The two countries are mutual major trade partners, according to Thailand's Ministry of Commerce. China has been Thailand's biggest trade partner for almost a decade since 2013. In 2020, Thailand's trading value with China exceeded 100 billion U.S. dollars, accounting for almost one fifth of Thailand's total international trade. Most of the exports from Thailand to China are hard drive, electronic components, agriculture goods, and products. Whereas the majority of goods that Thailand imports from China are electronic devices and mechanical parts. Not only trade, but Chinese tourists are the single largest number of foreign tourists visiting Thailand. In 2019, before the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, over 11 million Chinese visited Thailand, accounting for more than a quarter of all foreign tourists in that year. These Chinese visitors spend over 17 billion U.S. dollars in the country, according to Thailand's Ministry of Tourism and Sports. In ethnic and cultural relations, Chinese migrants have settled down in Thailand since long time ago, and they have assimilated well into the Thai society. And it seems Chinese people continue to move to Thailand. A new study by the Chinese Studies Center at Institute of Asian Studies, Chulalongkorn University, looks at new Chinese migrants whom are defined as those migrated from China after 1978 as the country opened up and underwent a major economic reform under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping. For those who migrated to Thailand, Almost 41% of them settled down in the country's central region, which includes Bangkok. And most of them do not intend to live in Thailand permanently as they came here to find jobs or do businesses, according to this new study. Dr. Gunari Nukit Rangsan, a researcher of this study on new Chinese migrants, shares her analysis and thoughts with Unlock the Science reporter Garantarat Lerit. In your study on new Chinese migration to Thailand. Did you find out why Thailand is a destination of these new Chinese migrants? Thailand become an interesting option is because of many reasons. Uh, to make it short, uh, firstly, uh, Thailand can provide a wide range of career opportunities, whether it is trading, investing, setting up uh, a factory, or if they have not enough and the money or capital they are also have another job to consider such as teaching the Chinese language and becoming a company employee. And secondly, Thailand is more flexible than other countries in terms of immigration. For applying for the working permit, working permit or visa also uh, not too difficult and not required too much money. And thirdly, uh, the local culture is not much different from China. There are no need to make much adjustment in terms of food, whether local people also very nice. Moreover, the nature of uh, Thai society is a cosmopolitan state, which is um, conducive for foreigners for living. And the last Listen is uh, the relationship between Thailand and China are smoothly. The country, the Thailand, is safe for 
terrorism and there are no racial and religious discrimination. So these are the reasons that why the large number of Chinese choose to move to Thailand. Is there any difference in characteristics, attitude of migration purpose between these new Chinese migrants and the older generations of migrants? Uh, about the characteristics, there's different group of people, the old Chinese immigrants, or the old Chinese migrants, or in general we call the overseas Chinese, most of them uh, were, were male and they were there were young men who came from the southern part of China, like Guangdong province, and they moved to Thailand while they don't know anything. They, they didn't know how Thailand is. They just know only is it better than the place he left. But the new Chinese immigrants, they are including both of uh, male and female, although most of them still come from uh, southern of China, but the number of those who form other, from other province is increasing. And the migration purpose also different. All Chinese immigrants move to Thailand to escape the, the hardship in their homeland or in their hometown. And when they first come to Thailand, these people work as uh, unskilled laborers due to their lack of education. But for the new Chinese immigrants, uh, they are more educated. Most of them migrated from China because they want to see uh, economic opportunities, not because of the poverty or any hardship. And before coming, they know everything about Thailand. They know how to make the profit and they have the plan to make the money in Thailand. And moreover, uh, they might be relocated, relocated to another country if uh, they have other challenge opportunities. And about the attitude, uh, also different. For the old Chinese, uh, their way of life was uh, one of um, cultural indication in which they adapt to Thai culture and Thai society, but they still retain their original Chinese tradition and values. This uh, allows old Chinese immigrants to live harmoniously in Thai society and there were no need to move back to China and no need to relocate to another country. But for the new Chinese immigrants, uh, some of them, especially the people who came for the business, uh, they don't care about the culture adaptation and they're proud to be Chinese and they might be go back to China when they're successful enough. Is there a possibility that Chinese migrants in Thailand and Chinese investors from China would dominate many sectors of Thai industries in the near future? I think it's possible if Thailand does not manage it well enough. If, uh, if we look, look at the past, many of Thai industries have become the chain for Chinese investors. For example, in tourism, uh, there was the zero dollar tour that sold the cheap tour and brought a large number of Chinese to Thailand. And it did not help the Thai economy much as this tour group would only visit the Chinese shops, stay at the Chinese-owned hotel and eat at Chinese restaurants. 
And in terms of education, it is now popular for Chinese students to study in Thailand, where they bought in by the Chinese agency and they study at the Chinese or educational institution that they take over for the Thai, the Thai owner. And in agriculture, I think um Chinese entrepreneur would lend out banana or durian plantation and any sheep or chart and they set down then or purchase Thai and send it back to China. The Thai products are highly popular with the Chinese people and this would prompt them to buy up uh, Thai business to produce and sell by themselves. So I think uh, if Thailand doesn't have an effective defense and management system, there is a high chance that this group of Chinese investors will dominate uh, the Thai economy. Associate Professor Dr. Piti shared with Unlock the Science that due to certain trade barriers imposed on made-in-China products by the European Union and United States, Chinese investors would need third-party countries such as those in ASEAN to produce and export to Western markets. If ASEAN member countries, especially Thailand, prepare themselves better, this will bring in a wealth of foreign investment, thus boosting their economic growth. On the other hand, Dr. Gunari said that massive imports from China provide Thai people with diverse choice of products, but simultaneously intensify local competition as more people opt for cheaper Chinese goods. Whether it is globally or regionally, China will certainly keep on expanding its might as it means to become a more prominent force in the world stage. Unlock the Science would like to thank Associate Professor Dr. Piti Si Sangnam of Faculty of Economics and Dr. Gunari Nukip Rangsan of Chinese Studies Center as Institute of Asian Studies, both from Chulalongkorn University, for sharing their analysis and thoughts in this episode. I hope you enjoy our program. You can listen to Unlock the Science on Chulal Radio Plus at FM 101.5 every Saturday from 1 p.m. to 1.30 p.m. You can also listen and follow us on our website, curadio.jula.ac.th, and our Facebook page. Our show is also accessible as podcasts, including on Apple and Spotify. See you again next Saturday. Have a nice day. Unlock the Science is edited and produced by Sinfa Tunsorawood. <laughs>